18 to 22, where he once again continues these commands. He says, do not quench the spirit, do not despise prophecies, but test everything, hold fast to what is good, and abstain from every form of evil. And so these are commands meant for this young church, and he, he, he knows that they're relatively new believers, and these are, are commands to believers. So if you're not a believer here today, you're going to have a hard time trying to fulfill these commands. You need the Spirit of the Holy Spirit within you, the Spirit of God within you, to even come close to fulfilling any of these commands that Paul is given to us here. And they seem kind of simplistic when you look at them, one or two words, but as we are finding out, they're rather profound and they're in-depth in a lot of ways. And so because they were relatively new believers... Um, these are commands to believers. And the church here is just a few months old. Remember, they're young believers. They're not mature believers. And so they need every bit of a reminder of what Paul has taught them when he was there with them those several months as they came to know Christ and he discipled them. And he basically gives them a reminder or you could say even a summarization of some basic principles or basic elements basic responsibilities, you could say, for any Christian. And all of this, remember, is in the context of of Paul talking about how Christians in the local church are to relate to one another. And we looked at previously how the sheep are are to relate to the shepherds or the pastors, how the, the shepherds or the pastors are to relate to their sheep, how the people are to relate to one another. We saw that. And now he specifically talks about how the sheep or the people are to relate to their great shepherd, the Lord himself. And so he begins here in verse 16, and we looked at so far, rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all, everything. But now we come to these five commands, verses 19 through 22. Don't quench the spirit, do not despise prophecies, test everything, hold fast to what is good, and abstain from every form of evil. And these are just five quick commands that he gives them. And today we're going to be looking at the first one, the first responsibility, the first principle here for Christian living, the responsibility not to quench the Spirit. Do not, he says in verse 19, quench the Spirit. Now today, if you ask people, what does that verse mean, you'll get a myriad of answers. Okay? Um, Some people... In the charismatic movement, say, well, that's when you speak out against any of these miracles that are going on, and if you speak out about tongues or healings and all that, that's, that's what that's talking about. I don't think so. That has nothing to do with that. And a lot of times they'll relate to this verse and they'll say specifically, oh, well, this is, this is Paul reminding him what he told the Corinthian church. Remember when we went through 1 Corinthians, how he talked about the spiritual gifts. He's talked about them in depth, and we've gone over that in depth. And some commentators, believe it or not, say, well, yeah, he he's, he's re- wants them to re- remember what he said to the Corinthian church. There's a big problem with that. When Paul wrote this letter to the Thessalonians, there was no church in, Rome, or in, in Corinth. There was no uh, Christians in Corinth. And this actually happened before that time. And so I don't think they had a problem with spiritual gifts in their new church. I don't think they were doing what the Corinthian church did. Uh, Because if they were, Paul would have told them. He would have addressed it to them, just like he did the Corinthian church. But we don't see any of that. He just says that simple command, do not quench the spirit. Now, I can tell you in kind of a reaction probably to the modern-day charismatic movement and the word of faith and all that stuff going on, the evangelical church has almost gone to the other extreme. They've minimized the importance of the Holy Spirit in believers' lives because they get freaked out by all the weirdness that's going on in that the charismatic movement. And so a lot of times, you know, people who are more... uh, in touch with what the scripture actually says concerning spiritual gifts have a tendency to kind of not talk about the Holy Spirit at all. 
sometimes, you know, they're very right in their doctrine, but they're known as the frozen chosen. You know, they, they don't let any room for the Holy Spirit. They don't let anything because they don't want to be affiliated with the other side of the pendulum. And we can't make that mistake. There is a place for the gift and the working of the Holy Spirit in our lives. He's part of the Godhead. He's God. He's a very real being. As a matter of fact, in in Galatians chapter 3, verse 3, Paul says this to the Galatian church, which obviously had a problem. He says, Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? I really see that how that applies to our modern day church. Because in today's evangelical church, the Holy Spirit's ministry and even the words power are dumbed down. They come second to uh, you know, pragmatic growth and humanistic techniques and methodologies to try to meet people's spiritual needs and, and emotional needs. That's more important. Keep the people happy so they'll come back. We want the church full. So we've got to do whatever we can, just keep the church full. And their modern-day church is really preoccupied with a lot of uh, psychology, a lot of humanistic thinking. As a matter of fact, a lot of churches have really uh, substituted man-centered approaches for biblical truth in dealing with people's problems. You see this in the area of counseling. There's a lot of people who will go to a Christian, quote, Christian counselor, and they receive basically secular information by a Christian. They do all the Freudian, all that Freudian uh, uh, psychology and all that stuff, and they bring it into what they call Christian counseling. And as a church, we don't really agree with that because there's a big difference between Biblical counseling, which we would believe in, euthetic counseling, which turns to the word of God as the source of truth, versus Christian counseling. And I think one of the most fundamental issues boils down to the views of Scripture. What is your source for authority? That could be asked of any counselor. Um, One of the key differences between biblical counseling and Christian counseling is their understanding of the doctrine of the sufficiency of Scripture and also the sufficiency of Christ. They don't believe that. They say that, well, you know what? Yeah, we believe the Bible and we're Christians and everything, but we, we, we think we have to apply these secular, a lot of times evolutionary, um, template to help people with problems. And that really goes against the doctrine of the sufficiency of Scripture. The the Westminster Confession of Faith says this, The whole counsel of God concerning all things necessary for his own glory, man's salvation, faith, and life, is either expressly set down in Scripture or by good and necessary consequence may may be deduced from Scripture, onto which nothing at any time is to be added whether by new revelations of the Spirit or traditions of men. And we read in 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 to 4, it tells us, basically, his divine power has granted to us, what? All things, all things that pertain to life and godliness, through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. And so when a a counselor seeks to provide answers to someone who is hurting, they're ultimately going to draw on some source of truth in their own mind. They're going to draw on some source of knowledge, And this source of truth, outside of ourselves, is seen as authoritative in the counseling process. And so it provides direction, it provides guidance. The question is this, what is your source of truth when you're dealing with a human problem? 
If someone comes to you and says, boy, I'm depressed, pastor, what do I do? Do I look up in a psychological manual, what what is depression and how can I help this person? Or do I go to God's word as the authority and give them scripture, which I believe is sufficient to meet their need? See, a Christian counselor wouldn't do that. For the the biblical counselor who holds to the sufficiency of Scripture, the source is the knowledge of the Bible. That's why they're called biblical counselors. A lot of times Christian counselors, on the other hand, that source is also, is, is usually the Bible plus something. The Bible plus psychology. And so we have to be careful with this. Um, it's not to say that the Bible has all the answers. I mean, you're not going to find a verse in the Bible that tells you how to, you know, uh, shave your head or how to change your tire or how to paint your house. But underlying all of life, especially when it comes to godly living, the Bible is our authority. Now, it doesn't mean that, you know, medicine and things like that can't provide for us some observations But as someone who believes the Bible to be sufficient, I believe we can effectively provide counsel to hurting people without any knowledge of psychology. Because God's word is true. And we have the authority of the word of God. And so today, the common understanding is that the Holy Spirit and God's word deal with problems in a simple way and superficially, but you really, if you really want to deal with your problem, you've got to go see a real trained, licensed psychologist, and they'll do psychotherapy on you and all kinds of other things, and that's what's really going to make you better. That's what's really going to make you whole. And that's just not true. In reality, it's really the superficial solution to spiritual needs. But the Holy Spirit, God's word, utilizing prayer and the word of God provides deep, it provides effective, lasting solutions to our lives. And so there's a lot of reasons why we've pushed away from the Spirit's work in our lives. One of them, as I already said, is the contemporary charismatic movement. A lot of times it misrepresents the true work of the Holy Spirit you want a book to read on that, MacArthur wrote a book called Strange Fire. It's an excellent critique of the modern-day charismatic movement. And it focuses much of its attention on the Holy Spirit and emphasizing the, the ministry and the gifts. And they kind of expect God to constantly perform supernatural works as they tell him to. And so that really misrepresents what the Spirit is about. And and really the church's de-emphasis on the Holy Spirit's working through the Word has led to a, a profound lack of discernment among the body of Christ. And so you see Bible-believing Christians believing all kinds of things that people come up with because they're not relying on the Spirit to give them that understanding. Um, and one could cite a lot of different symptoms for this. MacArthur lists six. He says, first, there's been a general weakening of doctrinal clarity and conviction within the church. Hopefully you see that. A lot of churches you go to, you ask them what they believe. Well, we believe the Bible. Okay, great. That's a good starting point. What do you believe about spiritual gifts? What do you believe about end time? Well, we, we don't get into that. That's, that's, you know, that's too divisive of information. Many Christians are no longer thinking biblically. They're not thinking theologically. They would even say, a vast majority of Christians today, if you ask them, is it wrong and unloving to be dogmatic? They would say yes. You have to be loving. You have to be gracious. Even in the most basic of doctrines, such as the inerrancy of Scripture and the deity of Christ, I've heard some Christians say, well, I know they might be messed up in that area a little bit, but you know, they're still, still in the Lord. 
Look, if you don't have Jesus right, and you don't have your Christology right, you're probably not a Christian. I don't care what you call yourself. And so we have to stand up to, in, in authority to these people who are sharing these wacky teachings out there. Don't be afraid to go to the word of God and point to that and say, hey, look, there's some doctrinal clarity here in the Bible about spiritual gifts. There's some doctrinal clarity here in the Bible about end times. There's some doctrinal clarity about the inerrancy of scripture, about who Christ said he was. So based on the authority of scripture, if you're not saying what the Bible says about Christ or you're not saying what the Bible says about the word of God, then you're wrong. No, no two ways about it. Secondly, he said, much of the church is no longer antithetical in its thinking. In other words, it doesn't make sharp distinctions between true and false. There's kind of a, a, a lukewarm, kind of a, a gray area that we just want to all hold hands and sing kumbaya. Nobody's right, nobody's wrong, everybody gets a trophy. Thirdly, he says, the image and influence have replaced the proclamation of the truth as the essence of evangelism. In other words, there's such a a risk of offending unbelievers within the local churches today is that they're unsure of how to present the gospel to them. In, In some churches, they won't talk about sin. They won't talk about the blood of Christ. And some churches have gone as far as to say that, well, you know, whether God's a man, a male or a female is kind of irrelevant. It's ridiculous. Instead, it, they, they believe that they're, they're relying on marketing, they're relying on philosophy to present some sort of, they call it seeker-friendly message that basically focuses on people's felt needs. What do they want to hear? Whatever they want to hear, that's what we want to tell them because they'll come back next Sunday. They may die and go to hell, but that's okay. The church will be full. Fourth, he says, the church has ceased valuing sound hermeneutics or the study of scripture. When, when you stand behind a pulpit and you share the word of God, you should be doing so with careful and accurate interpretation of the scripture. You don't just get up there and say, well, what do you think it means? What do you think it means? Well, I think it means this. Let's move on to the next verse. No. Scripture means something. It was written by God under his authority. I don't care what you think the verse means. Tell me what the verse means. That's what we need to hear. Fifthly, he says, the church has mostly ceased exercising church discipline against those members who persist in sin or error. And so as a result of that, if you're not going to keep the flock of Christ pure... By exercising church discipline, by letting people know, okay, yeah, that kind of doctrine doesn't fly here. And if you're going to continue to teach that here or try to teach it to people, you're going to be called out on it. And so it's hard a lot of times because when churches don't do that, what happens is it just keeps on coming in. And pretty soon you have a a church that's made up of, yeah, some Bible-believing Christians, but then all of a sudden you have all these other people who believe all sorts of things. And it pollutes the body of Christ. It makes it ineffective. And then sixthly, last, he says, all of the preceding features produce and are characteristic of a spiritually immature church. He describes it this way. He says, the self-absorbed church preoccupied with attaining personal comfort, success, and achieving man-centered solutions to life problems possess a superficial faith that cannot discern between good and evil or truth and error. They are most interested in meeting people's felt needs than preaching the truth. They are more interested in meeting people's felt needs than preaching the truth. We don't want to be that kind of church. And so the first responsibility here, he says, do not quench the spirit. Do not quench the spirit. There's no reason in the text as we read these verses, they aren't connected really to one another. I've read some commentaries that say, well, it says do not quench the spirit, but then it gives us a kind of a subheading how to do that. 
Well, you, you don't quench the spirit when you don't despise prophecies and you test everything and you hold fast to what is good and you abstain from evil. And they kind of put it as a subheading under do not quench the spirit. I don't think that's really mandated here. I think they're just staccato commands. Do not quench the spirit. Do not despise prophecies. Test everything. Hold fast to what is good. Abstain from evil. You know, it's kind of like he ran out of room on the page or something and he just had to write him a bunch of stuff that was on his heart without even going into any detail. And so he wants them to understand these, these basic, basic commands. And to appreciate the short list of commands here or responsibilities, um, we have to remember the Holy Spirit's role in our lives. We have to focus on that, and that's what we're going to focus on this morning. What does the Holy Spirit do for us? What is the ministry of the Holy Spirit? The Bible says by his sovereign power, God through the Spirit, through the Holy Spirit, regenerates us. It regenerates sinners. That's one thing the Spirit does. It also completes this transformation of our spiritual affections. Before we had the Holy Spirit, we had no spiritual affections. It's only after such that we receive from God these spiritual affections. All of a sudden we, we have an affection to pray and we have an affection to, to read God's word and to, to fellowship with, with each other as believers. The Holy Spirit also frees us from slavery to habitual sin. It places us into the body of Christ. We are baptized into the body of Christ through the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And that's not some spiritual uh, thing that happens. It's, it's something that, uh, I mean, it's not something uh, physical that happens to us after you're a Christian. A lot of times, and this is one of the erroneous doctrines that's out there, certain people believe you can become a Christian, but until you speak in tongues, you're not really baptized by the Holy Spirit. Well, if you're not baptized by the Holy Spirit, guess what? You're not a Christian. And if you're not a Christian, you're not going to have a spiritual gift. So it's a vicious circle they end up leading people through. But the Holy Spirit places us into the body of Christ. And you can read that if you look over at Romans, Romans chapter 8. Just turn over there real quickly. Romans 8. Romans 8, look down at verse 15. It says in verse 14, For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. Then he says this, For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs and heirs of God and fellow heirs of Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. And so you see the role of the Holy Spirit here in the believers' lives. But he also takes up residence in our life. Just look at verse 9, same chapter. He says, you, however, are not in the flesh, speaking to Christians, but are in what? In the Spirit, if, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. So if you don't have the Spirit of Christ dwelling in you, guess what? You're not a Christian. You can't be a Christian. It's impossible. It also pours the love of God into our, heart, into our hearts. If you just turn back to Romans 5, 5, he tells us there, hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts. How? Through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. How many times have you heard believers say, well, I just need more love? No, you don't. You don't need more love. You need to utilize the love that God has already poured out in your heart. 
He shed, he shed abroad in our hearts the love of Christ. There's no greater love you're going to find. You can pray all day long for more love and it ain't going to happen. But he also, the Holy Spirit, gives us gifts for spiritual service. In Romans 12, it talks about that. In 1 Corinthians, we're not going to go into all the verses, but he gifts us specifically, every believer has at least one spiritual gift. And that gift should be used for the edification of the body of Christ. It's not a gift that you get and go home and and climb in your closet and and practice and say, oh, I'm I'm being edified by my own gift. That's not the purpose of spiritual gifts. (coughs) The purpose of spiritual gifts is to, what, edify the body of Christ. We've all been given a spiritual gift. Do you know what it is? Are you practicing it? If not, you better get busy. That's why God left you here. And also the Holy Spirit seals us for all of eternity. And he sanctifies us. That's a ministry that the the Holy Spirit is actively doing in our lives. In this process of sanctification, it begins, and I put there in your notes, the Holy Spirit illuminates the word of God. And when Paul says, do not quench the spirit, it's kind of a word that you think of quenching out a fire, right? You go camping, and before you leave your campground, you've got to put the fire out, so you take some water, ice, whatever, throw it on the fire so that it's quenched out, so it's put out. Well, here he's saying, do not quench the power of the Spirit. Don't stifle it. Don't draw down its energy. Allow it to flourish. And he wants us to understand that in in 1 Corinthians 2.10, he says, these things God has revealed to us through the Spirit, for the Spirit, listen, searches everything, even the depths of God. And then down in verses 12 and 13 of 1 Corinthians 2, he says, now we have received not the Spirit of the world, as believers, we don't want to rely on the spirit of the world. That wouldn't be good. But the spirit who is from God, the Holy Spirit, that we might understand the things freely given to us by God, and we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom. There it is. We don't rely on human wisdom, but we are taught by the spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. That's why I said earlier, if you're not a believer... This is going to be a hard message to apply to yourself. If you haven't put your faith, your trust in Christ yet, I would say, what are you waiting for? He's the only answer for all of your needs. He's the only one who is sufficient to meet your needs, especially your needs of forgiveness. Because whether you think you're a good person or not, you're a sinner and you need to be saved by God's grace. You may not be the worst sinner in all of the world, but it doesn't make any difference. One sin keeps you out of heaven. It doesn't matter if it was a little lie you told when you were small or something you took or, or a, a word that was spoken that was sinful, blasphemy against God at some point, whatever it might be. Any of those things designate you as a sinner before a holy God. And we need to recognize our need of a Savior and come to Christ But as believers, we grow spiritually by being fed the word, by feeding on the word. 1 Peter 2, verse 2, it says, Like newborn babes, 1 Peter 2, 2, long for that pure milk of the word so that by it you may grow in respect to your salvation. If you're a believer here today and you're saying, well, I'm not really growing in my Christian faith and how do I grow? Well, you, you get into the word. You begin to make yourself available to opportunities to be taught the word, whether it's Sunday morning, whether it's Wednesday night, whether it's Tuesday Bible study, men's studies on Thursdays, whatever it might be, there's no excuse not to be taught the word, especially in this church at some point. And so if you're saying you're not growing, then you're not availing yourself to the opportunities to be taught. 
And so you can quench this aspect of the Spirit's work by failing to study Scripture. If you're not studying Scripture regularly, then it's, you're going you're gonna to not see the Holy Spirit illuminate the Word of God for you. If you're failing to hide the Word of God in your heart, sometimes we memorize Scripture. Some people are really good at it. Some people aren't. But I think that the key is understand the principle of Scripture. As a youth pastor, and, and for many years, I, I remember hearing kids recite Bible verses till it just came out their ears in Awana and other children's program. And then I started asking, well, what does that mean to you? And they'd look at you with a blank stare like, what do you mean? I just, I just quoted it to you. Can we go on to the next one? I want to get my reward at the end of the night. And they had no idea what the verse meant. They were just doing it to get a prize. And it's unfortunate, but many of those children, many of those kids, teens that grew up, are far from the Lord today, even though they've memorized tons of Scripture. But by failing to hide the Word of God in your heart, you're kind of going to overrule the Holy Spirit's ability to illuminate the Word of God to you. Well, secondly, the Holy Spirit brings believers into intimacy with God. That's on the back of the outline there. It brings believers into intimacy with God. In Ephesians or Romans 8, we just read that verse, verse 15 and 16. It says, Abba, Father, the Spirit testifies with our spirit. There's an intimacy there. There's a, a relationship there between the, the Holy Spirit and the believer. And he wants believers to have that, that joyful confidence, you could say, that, you know what, God loves them as his children. God's not up in heaven carrying a big club waiting for you to step out of line so he can whack you upside the head. That's that's not what we see in Scripture, especially for believers. God will discipline us if we're stepping out of line because he loves us. But there's no fear of one day going to heaven and standing before God as I trust in Christ for my salvation and him saying, well, you know what? You did pretty good, but get out of here. It's never going to happen. He holds us fast in his hand when we put our faith, our trust in Christ. And we are, as believers, to be growing in our sanctification. We're to be growing in our holiness. And that happens as we become more intimate with God through the Holy Spirit. Sometimes it's fun to read Scripture and put yourself in the Scripture rather than just looking at it from the outside. Put your name in the Scripture. Inject yourself into the Scripture. It can make it more personal. But we can quench this too, this idea of intimacy, by not accepting God's purpose for us and certain times of difficulty in our lives. Think about it. I think some of the most intimate times I've had with the Lord has been at times in my life where it's been most difficult. And I think everybody would say that to some degree. Or by not being prayerful, by not being worshipful, by not casting our cares upon God because he cares for us, as he tells us. But just worrying yourself to death. That's ridiculous. You have a God that loves you more than you could ever even understand. Or by operating in our own flesh is another way. Not leaving God out of the picture. Just saying, I'll work it out on my own. By not trusting God's love. Well, thirdly, the Holy Spirit glorifies Christ to believers and makes them more like him. I'm so thankful for that. I'm thankful that I don't have to make myself like Christ. It would never happen. It would never happen. The Holy Spirit who dwells within us, 2 Corinthians 3.18 says, But we all with an unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed. We're being changed day by day, moment by moment, into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord the Spirit, he says. And so the Holy Spirit does that work in our lives. 
And we can see, as a New Testament believer, the veil is, is taken off. And we can look into the, the mirror of the Word of God and we can see what's going to happen to us eventually when we come to faith in Christ. But you can even quench the Spirit's effort in this area. You can quench the Spirit's effort to make you more Christ-like by neglecting to read, by neglecting to study Scripture. Maybe you're just into reading the Bible for information. Some people just read the Bible because they want to know more about the Bible, but it never connects to their heart. You have to allow Christ to reveal, you have to allow the scriptures to reveal Christ to you. Sometimes people are just too proud to admit they need to see his glory. They need to become more like him. They think they've already arrived and they haven't. Well, the fourth thing the Holy Spirit does is it helps believers know God's will. I mean, if we went around here and said, if those believers who are here today said, raise your hand if you want to know God's will for you, everybody would put their hand up. You would want to know God's will. You would want to know what what God's plan. Why? Because he created you. He knows what's best for you. And he will let us know and obey the scripturally revealed word of God, the Holy Spirit will. There's a lot of God's will that is just revealed to us in scripture. We don't have to go searching for it. He puts it out there for us. He says in Ezekiel 36, 27, I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, and you will be careful to observe my ordinances. This is the revealed word of God. But the Spirit also leads believers kind of more subjectively into God's will for their own individual life. Sometimes we're faced with a decision, a big decision, and and we want to ask God for wisdom. He will give us wisdom. And it comes through the Holy Spirit. Psalm 143.10 says this, Psalm 143.10, Teach me to do your will, for you are my God. And then he says this, Let your good Spirit lead me. On level ground. You know, it's fun to go on a hike and to, to hike up a mountain or whatever, but, you know, when you're hiking up a mountain and you're hiking and you're hiking and you're hiking, after a while you're like, just give me some level ground, right? You're done, done going up and down. Just give me some level ground. That's where God wants us to be. But you can quench this, you can stifle this. This work of, of God, the Holy Spirit, allowing you to see God's will through self-will, through stubbornness, pride, indifference. The last thing the Holy Spirit does is grants believers inward strength to help us stay on that path of, of sanctification that he has for us. In Ephesians 3, 16 Paul prayed this for the Ephesian church. Listen, he says, that God would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner man. I mean, do you want to be a a tepid, weak, little Christian in this world? Walking around fearful of what people might think or how your words might offend or Or do you want to be strong? Do you want to be a believer who lives for for Christ each and every day, strengthened with the power of his spirit for his glory? It's not for your own glory. I mean, you cannot walk as a Christian in obedience to God without being relying on the Holy Spirit's strength. You have to have that. You have to have his indwelling word, the spirit of Christ within you. And through his sealing, the Holy Spirit, it says, seals us eternally in Christ. There's no question of us who've trusted in Christ one day being saved. There shouldn't be any question at all. 
Matter of fact, in Ephesians chapter 1, look over there. Ephesians chapter 1. I mean, it just kind of gives us a little glimpse. Ephesians 1. I mean, to talk about our security in Christ. Look at what it says in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Who has blessed us, who? Those who have put faith and trust in Christ. Who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Has nothing to do with this world. Has nothing to do with who's in the Oval Office, in the White House. Has nothing to do with that because it's in heaven. It's in a heavenly place. Verse 4 says, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. That we should be holy and blameless before him. He chose us before the foundation of the world. Before there was an us, he chose us. <laughs> when you figure that out, let me know. I'd, I'd like to know the answer to that. It, it, that rests in the mind of God. That rests in the power of God. This is how almighty our God is. And then he says, in love he predestined us for the adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to our will? No, it says according to the purpose of his will. God has a purpose in everything for us. And then he says in verse 6, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have the redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace. If you just go through this text and you start circling words like him and in him and his and he, and it's, it's like every other word almost. Verse 8, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on the earth. In other words, God's got it all covered from beginning to end, from top to bottom, east to west. It first says in verse 11, In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, you know, so many times we go to God in prayer and we want our will. God, make this happen. I want this. I want that. There's nothing wrong with sharing your desires because God does say that he will give you the desires of his heart. But I think the clarification is as long as they line up with his will. <laughs> and you, wouldn't, you shouldn't want it if it's not part of his will for you. When you want something that's not part of God's will for you, the Bible has a word for that. Sin, right? We don't want that. And he says here, in verse 12, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, listen, this is the, where it talks about the Holy Spirit here. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, what's it say? We're sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. When you came to faith in Christ, first of all, you came to faith in Christ because he drew you, he saved you, he loved you first. You didn't find God, you didn't find Christ, he wasn't lost. You put your faith and trust in Christ. But God first worked in your heart to help you understand that truth. But you notice that he says you're sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. So once again, if we're not sealed with the promised Holy Spirit and we don't have eternal salvation, then guess what? God's a liar. Because this was promised to us. The Holy Spirit. 
And then he describes what it is, verse 14, who is the guarantee of our inheritance. It's kind of like when you go to the store and you see something you want, but you don't have the means to get it right away. So you put, what, a down payment okay, on something, and, and that kind of tells the clerk that, hey, I'll be back with the rest of it. Uh, don't sell this to anybody. This is a guarantee that I want this item. Well, God gives us the Holy Spirit as a guarantee of our inheritance. In other words, it's already ours. It's already ours. Because he says, until we acquire possession of it, ultimately, to the praise of his glory. When will that happen? When our glorification happens. That's what we have to look forward to. Without the Spirit's strength, you could never have victory over sin. You could never have victory over the flesh. Without the Spirit's ability within you, you could never witness effectively. Everything you said and did would fall flat on its face. The Spirit of Christ, the Spirit, the Holy Spirit allows us to worship God from our hearts. And then guess what? It allows us to relate to everybody else who has that same Holy Spirit. That's why when you go on vacation and you go to church, I never understood Christians that go on vacation and don't go to church. Can't comprehend that. Maybe because I don't get to go to a lot of churches. So when I go on vacation, it's the only time I get to go to another church. And I want to find out what they're doing and how the service goes and everything. It's kind of fun to look at that kind of stuff. But even not being involved in ministry, I would still go to church. Not just because you have to go to church, but because you can have fellowship with other believers around a, a common set of doctrines and you can have that fellowship that's provided to us by the Holy Spirit. But even this empowering work of the Spirit can be quenched. It can be quenched through pride. I don't need that. I don't need church. Um, you can have overconfidence in your human ability. Thinking, hey, you know, I'm got the education. I'm pretty good at this or that. I can just wing it. No, because when you wing it, you're denying your need of the Holy Spirit. Every Sunday, 5 o'clock, when I'm leaving the house to come over here on a Sunday morning, I usually turn on the radio, but the whole time I'm praying, God, allow today somehow work through this feeble mind and feeble lips to communicate your truth, to encourage, to edify the body of Christ. Draw people to Christ. Hide us behind the cross. Hide us behind Christ. You know, you could never worship God if it wasn't through the Holy, for the Holy Spirit. Couldn't do it. And so we want to make sure that we don't quench <laughs> The Spirit. Isaiah 11.2 says this, The Spirit of the Lord will rest on him, Christ, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and strength, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. So you can only not quench the Spirit of Christ, the Holy Spirit, only when you're filled with the Spirit. You're controlled by the Spirit. And once again, that's just basically yielding him control of your life. Ephesians says, don't be filled with wine, right, which takes control. Don't be filled with alcohol, but be filled with what? The Holy Spirit. That's a lot better thing to control you than any other substance. And in Galatians 5.25, he says, you know what? If you receive Christ, so walk in Christ. Well, how did you receive Christ? By the Spirit. And so we're to walk every moment by the Spirit of Christ. And so I think if you put those into practice, honestly, you'll have no problem doing exactly what he tells us here. Do not, do not, any, under any circumstances, quench the Spirit. And we'll talk about this next week, but 
just so you know, in the original language, when he gives these commands, beginning in verse 19, it's basically phrased this way. The spirit do not quench. Prophecies do not despise. It's almost reversed from what we're reading it. And so we want to be praying about this and and asking the Lord to help us in this manner. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you that your word is rich, it's deep, it's far more than we could ever wish for. And Lord, you've given us all a copy of it, a personal copy of it that we can study, that we can grow. And Lord, the only way that we're going to fulfill this command of not quenching the Holy Spirit is simply by trusting you to allow the Spirit to live the life of Christ through us. We can't do it on our own. Even the Apostle Paul, probably one of the greatest believers who ever lived, said, it's not me that lives, it's Christ that lives in me. If it was up to Paul living his Christian life, he would have failed miserably. And he says so very clearly. The things I want to do, I don't do. The things I want to do, I do. And the things that I should be doing, I don't do. And he had that conflict. And we all have that conflict each and every day. But Lord, we pray that our Christian lives would be lived in a way that would be honoring to you. And Lord, it all starts with a proper understanding of the Holy Spirit's rule and reign in our life. And Father, we pray that you would touch each heart today, that as we leave this place, that we would be attuned anew to the the power of the Holy Spirit in our life. That we wouldn't just go about this next week just doing what we want to do, but we would be waiting on the Spirit's leading and guiding us as he promises to do. And Father, for those who may not know you as Savior here today, Lord, we ask that you would, through the power of the Holy Spirit, through the power of your word, convict their hearts of their sin. Convict their hearts that they need more than just themselves. Because we've all sinned in a myriad of ways, and yet you've provided an answer for our sin. You've provided a hope. You've provided forgiveness for our sin. And Lord, we pray that you would do that work in, in that, even that one heart today, to draw them to you. To help the pieces of the puzzle of what they've heard fit together. And Lord, that you would quicken their heart and their mind to understand the glorious truth of the gospel that Jesus saves. We need to cry out to him in humility, asking him to do so. Be merciful to me, a sinner. That's a prayer that's when it's prayed from a repentant, sincere heart, God will answer every time. And so, Father, we thank you. Pray you bless our time of fellowship across the way, bless the food to our bodies. And, Lord, we pray that we would be able to keep, um, as we embark on this Christmas season, things into perspective. And, Lord, that we would be reminded that the glorious hope of Christ has come to this lost and dying world and that we have the opportunity as believers to remind people of that fact. And what a wonderful time to invite people to to church, friends, neighbors, family members, to help them to hear the glorious truth of the gospel. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' precious name. Amen.